Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal. This week, we're covering the emergency move to stimulate the economy that's been very affected by this current coronavirus pandemic. Now, let me introduce our A6NZ expert, Alex Rampel, general partner who specializes in fintech. Alex, can you start by summarizing the news for me? And then I also want you to explain the measures and what they are and what the Fed is doing as a way to help stimulate the economy during this time. Well, the Fed is doing lots of different things that all fall under this rubric of monetary policy. That can be everything from lowering interest rates to buying certain assets and get making short-term loans. So they're doing lots and lots of different things. The news changes every day. I think they've now done seven or eight things to try to stabilize many markets. So they've slashed interest rates to zero. They've brought back quantitative easing, which is you, you kind of create money and buy bonds. And uh, I talked about this on another episode. Yeah, you talked about it previously on 16 Minutes. They've started buying commercial paper, which are short-term business loans. They unveiled something called the Money Market Mutual Fund Liquidity Facility, um, which is actually something that came out in 2008, kind of guaranteeing and backstopping money market funds, which is basically saying we're going to loan money or provide money to a money market fund so they don't have to potentially liquidate assets below par, which is how you break the buck. They've introduced swap lines with foreign banks to make sure that those countries have enough dollars. A swap line is not like, hey, we're going to give you free dollars. It's like you pledge collateral and then we give you dollars. They now let banks can now borrow money from the Fed at, at very, very low interest rates. And now yeah. they also have loans out to primary dealers of treasury bonds. Again, it's kind of pledging collateral to borrow money. There was a misunderstanding of some of these because, for example, the Fed rolled out a $1.5 trillion repo line. And some are like, if we can give $1.5 trillion to Wall Street, you know, why can't we provide Medicare for all or student loan forgiveness right. or this, that, or the other? That wasn't the Fed giving $1.5 trillion to anybody. What a repo line is, is it's a very, very short-term lending facility. So it's saying, okay, you have lots of T-bills or you have lots of agency bonds like Fannie and Freddie mortgages. Mm -hmm. So residential mortgages that are effectively backed by the, by the U.S. government. And you've got a cash crunch because you know, people want to withdraw money from you or you, you have to come up with liquidity, who is going to give you money in this dire time? Well, the Fed is going to give you money, not as a handout, but just saying, okay, you go give me possession of your treasury bills or of your agency mortgages or of some kind of like very, very solid collateral, and then I will give you cash. But then you got to give me back the cash later. It just prevents this problem of markets seizing up. And right. market seizing up is a catastrophic thing in this period because it's like, okay, I need money. I don't trust the market. I want to sell everything, sell everything, sell everything. And having a stabilizing agent that can provide liquidity prevents the market from falling apart. But it doesn't mean that keeping markets liquid puts everybody back to work tomorrow. It's more of like if we didn't have liquid markets on top of every other catastrophe that we're going through right now, it would be like a a mega, mega, mega catastrophe versus a mega, mega catastrophe. One of the concerns that's top of mind for people and for those of us who are in lockdown, like we are both remote on this podcast because where you live and I live, the cities have been, the declaration is to shelter at home to prevent the spread of coronavirus. So for instance, I can't go to a restaurant anymore. Some restaurants might be able to deliver, but they shut down all non-essential services. So the question I have for you is, how does this affect 
small and medium-sized businesses? Because a lot of these moves at a macro scale sound very important for business. The Fed's job is to control the money supply. The Fed doesn't have tools to reach out to every small business and say, like, here's money. And even if they did, if they have no demand because the government doesn't allow customers to go to the restaurant for health reasons, and that doesn't really help anybody. This really goes into the realm of fiscal policy. And my, my personal take on this is that there's a notion that the government has eminent domain. Like you can own the land, but it's in the government's interest and ability to not seize that land, but to compensate you fairly and take back that land if necessary. So right, when like building a train. Yeah, like you build a train track, there's land in the way, we will compensate those people, but we will exercise our right of eminent domain. We, as the, the democratically elected government, has the right to take back this property. And my take on this situation, which I think is it's dramatically different than 2008 and 2009, is it's almost an eminent domain of solvency and revenue, where the restaurant is not allowed to function. Right. They don't have supply of customers. Right. So giving every American who's now out of work money to go to the restaurant doesn't actually help the restaurant stay solvent. We collectively, in the name of public health, have eminent domain, a huge chunk of the economy that doesn't have enough cash to weather all of their revenue going to zero. Many of these businesses operate on very, very small margins. It's going to be very hard for the airlines where some of the most popular routes cannot be flown because the governments have shut this down. They've almost eminent domain that as well. And you could say, well, the airlines, they should have kept adequate cash on hand to really go forecast this. But you could say the same thing of the coffee shop. You could say the same thing of the yoga studio. You could say the same thing of the restaurant. Like there, there are kind of two elements of fiscal policy that are being debated right now. The two areas of focus are there's one for business and there's one for individuals. Because people need to eat, they need to pay their rent, they need some kind of compensation. It's possible that unemployment could be 30% right now, which is just stunning. It's because you're forcing everybody to stay home and not everybody you know, works in the knowledge economy where they can work from home. So you can give people two months of cash and you say, okay, I'm going to come up with some mechanism to make it fair. I'm going to pay this much to you and then X dollars per dependent. And I'm sure they'll come up with all sorts of different clever ideas of doing that. It kind of matters not if they have no job to go back to in two months. Exactly. And if, if the government has to support 30, 40% of all people in the United States, in the name of public health, the employers that they used to work for will no longer exist. In the name of public health, like the solvency of their employer has been eminent domain. Right. So you've got the individual response and then you've got the business response. And my argument would be that the individual response, while very complicated, is a much simpler solve than the business response. A lot of what needs to be done is two things. It's adjudication and disbursement. It's how do we figure out who needs what? Adjudication means like who deserves this, who doesn't, how much do you need, how much do you not? And the thing that most small businesses need as a buffer, because they didn't plan for this, like how could they, and even if they did, I would argue this is eminent domain as opposed to their own failures as a small business owner. And a lot of what small businesses and even big businesses need help with is they need help with their fixed costs because variable costs like employees, you could say, I'm going to furlough them or like I'm a restaurant. I don't need to buy vegetables anymore. But what's a fixed cost is my rent, um, my utility bill, the machines that maybe I'm paying interest on because I'm renting them, like all, things like that where you can't just get out of it. And then on the disbursement side, the government already knows how to give money to people you filed your taxes and you've already gotten money from the IRS, like, great, the IRS can do that again. 
it's within their purview. Whereas small business, that's really, really complicated because a lot of small business, it's not like, oh, you have an LLC or a C corporation. Like, it's like, oh, no, it's like Jim the plumber. Mom and pop shops. It's mom and pop shops. This would be known as a sole proprietorship or a DBA, like doing business as, like there's no corporation there. If you employ people legally, then you have what's called an FEIN, a Federal Employment Identification Number, which is kind of the business equivalent of an SSN. But how much money do we give to the plumber? How do we figure out what their fixed costs are? Because it's not as simple as we can look at your tax return last year. Like there's no equivalent of that for a small business because they're not filing a corporate tax return. So the government actually has no idea what the P&L looks like for that business because Joe the plumber just keeps the profits or lack thereof and then pays personal income taxes on that. Like that's how the owner compensates himself or herself. So which again makes this adjudication and disbursement very complicated because it's like, how do I know where the businesses are in America? And then how do I know where I help and who I help So what I'm hearing you say, basically, is that adjudication and disbursement are hard. The government has certain existing tools in their toolkit for like solving things in the macro and for certain big businesses. But in this case, the small mom and pop, the people who aren't traditional LLCs, who are FEINs, you know, DBAs, these various other entities, they basically are businesses that are operating that the government does not have natural visibility into the way they might say with the P&L because the company submits certain things. Exactly, yes. Like you might know that they have payroll. That's about it. You have some businesses by virtue of being what are called C-corporations that file corporate tax returns and pay corporate income tax to the federal government. But even there, they're not showing line item detail of what they're spending money on. Well, at least the government knows that you generated $200,000 of profit. Whereas I'm Joe, then all of my income comes from my business. I just file a tax return that says, this is my income. Whereas every private lender, there are lots of that make loans to small business. It's their job to understand like how much, how many widgets do you make? What are all your costs? How much do you pay in rent? Just because they're giving you a loan and they want to make sure they're going to get paid back. So they really analyze the cash flow dynamics of the business. The government has no idea what that is. So I would argue that to adjudicate this fairly, you have to understand that because giving people a multiple of revenue, that doesn't make any sense. If you're giving people a multiple of payroll, which is what Denmark is trying to do right now, they're guaranteeing 75% of payroll, I believe, to employers to keep their employees employed. That might not matter either because like, what if you have five employees and you have, you know, massive electrical bills because you've smelt aluminum or something? That's not going to work either. So your point basically is that where there isn't an obvious and easy solution and it's always going to be quite complex one area the government has zero visibility into that's not machine readable, that's not really understandable for them to adjudicate or deal with, even if they wanted to, is actually partially addressable through technology solutions where these things are modeled and documented and and analyzed. And so that could be one way to solve this. And the nice thing here is you get both adjudication and disbursement. Imagine that I use QuickBooks. I have my rent in there. Everything is itemized and you can see how much I have in terms of fixed costs versus variable costs and all of that. There could also be a button saying, get government assistance. And you click on that button and then it looks at your financials and then boom, 24 hours later, you have money in your account. Whereas right now there's something called the Small Business Administration, which guarantees loans to small businesses. SBA loans often have this kind of adverse selection mechanic to them because they just take way too long. An SBA loan typically takes 90 days to get. It's very, very complicated. Whereas if you go to like a private lender, that might take a day or even an hour. 
the default is the government's going to remain bureaucratic longer than you can remain solvent. That's the catastrophe where like every minute counts, because if it takes like four months to go figure this out, then we have lost like 90% of small business in America. I mean, just concretely, like in my neighborhood alone, a number of restaurants have already laid off like workers and some of them already shut down. And that's just a very specific example. And it's, right. those are people's livelihoods. It's not academic by any means. So now on this note of the difference between fiscal and monetary policy, what is the difference? Monetary policy is basically controlling the money supply, changing or backstopping certain financial instruments. Largely, it's everything around like how money works and how markets function. Fiscal policy is everything that the government can do to either stoke demand, uh, lower taxes, increase taxes, buy lots of products, put people in work. Like the government during the Great Depression, there was something called the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. It's like, let's build bridges. It's things that the government does to increase GDP because one of the components of GDP is government spend. So government can be demand and government can hire people. The government is effectively a business in this regard. Everything that Congress or your local legislature does, like that's very much in the realm of fiscal policy. Monetary policy, it's what the Fed does or what the Treasury Department might do in some cases. Largely speaking, that's the delineation. That's so helpful, Alex. Did you want to explain buyback versus dividend? Sure. I mean, this is a very, very complicated thing that I think goes back to adjudication. So there's been some populist uprising of like, oh, we shouldn't bail out XYZ company because they bought back their stock. And, uh, and again, I'm not saying that we should bail out everybody, we should bail out nobody, but there's this misnomer that buybacks are bad and dividends are fine. And they're actually functionally the same thing. Interesting. What do you mean? Why? So if you are a company and you generated a million dollars of profit and you have lots of shareholders, how much per share do I get? And when you, that's what earnings per share means. So if you reduce the number of shares by buying back shares, then the shares that are left have higher earnings per share. Or if you pay out a dividend, then each shareholder gets a certain amount of money per share. They're mathematically equivalent. Like there are papers on this. I mean, dividends are a sure thing versus like I could buy back a lot of my stock and then I tank the next quarter and then like the price goes down. But in terms of efficiency of returning money to shareholders, Based on U.S. tax policy, buybacks are actually more efficient than dividends, but most companies use a combination of both. And the reason why companies exist is to return money to their owners. And by the way, the coffee shop works the same way. There's no difference between a coffee shop and Boeing. Um, the coffee shop owner makes a certain amount of money and then withdraws some percentage of that money to pay himself or herself, and that would be called a dividend. The cogent argument would be like, this is their own fault. We should let them fail because they didn't keep enough money on their balance sheet for a rainy day. And it doesn't matter if they paid out dividends or buybacks. Again, I would liken this event more to eminent domain, but that is an ideologically sound argument. What is not an ideologically sound argument is like, okay, you paid dividends. Well, that's fine because you just had to give money to your shareholders. You bought back your stock. That is the root of all evil. No money for you. Because again, like if we kind of take this back a step and think about adjudication, are we saying that, okay, the government has banned XYZ company from operating and hell no, will they get a pass or a, some kind of bailout because they return money to shareholders? Oh, but dividends would be fine, but buybacks are bad. It doesn't make any sense. 
Right. It's a fallacy because they're actually equivalent. So you shouldn't be judging people basically based on whether they did buy that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're functionally equivalent. And then you also say like the coffee shop and the yoga studio and everybody else. Well, like, you know, I guess it's their fault too, because why did the owner take out money and they should have kept that money in the corporation? They should have said, okay, there might be a time when I am banned from operating for three months in the name of public health due to a virus. I'm going to hold on to four years of cash and not pay myself a cent. Like they paid themselves dividends over the last four years. So I guess we should let them all fail too. And that means that 90% of businesses are going to fail and then nobody will have jobs. So that, that seems like a problem. I'm not saying that we need, we need a bail out every company, but I would, I would like to have a consistent adjudication and disbursement mechanism um, yes. as opposed to kind of fall into populism, which is like, oh, buy back bad, big company bad, small company good. Oh, small company that does this good, but small company that does that bad. Right. You're basically arguing for a more systematic approach. So Alex, bottom line it for me, how should we think about this recent news about the government's moves, primarily in monetary policy and also some of the fiscal strategies it's an ongoing developing story. It could be changing hourly as we speak. What's the takeaway? We have a very injured patient right now, and the patient is the U.S. economy. The idea of monetary policy is keep the patient alive, keep the patient functioning. But it's like if you just broke your leg and you're bleeding, like the monetary policies are tools that we use to keep the markets functioning, but that's not going to make your leg better. That's just going to make sure that you don't run out of blood on your way to the hospital. You still yes. have to learn how to walk again. You got to go through your physical therapy. And that's the fiscal policy. That's a lot more complicated. So it's not really clear exactly how to do that. We're fighting this actual virus, which if not addressed is going to cause catastrophic harm. But we also have to fight the economic virus because the way that economics works is that demand begets supply begets demand. So one person's revenue is another person's spending. Like you here, here you want not viral growth, but the same dollar gets recirculated many, many, many times. Mm. So, you know, we, we have a circulating virus, but no circulating money. And we need to kind of flip that. Thank you so much for joining this segment, Alex. 